self-serve technology has been around for a longer time than most people would think. The Hopin brand is all us. I mean, it's me and my team. We created the brand, created the franchise. I saw the technology in a different city. It was brought to me from a friend at the time that saw the technology. And at that point, my first thought of a bar was like, heck no, because of the headaches and things that come with it and the overhead. Once I saw the technology, I was like, all right, you can run this with seven to 10 people, full staff, and then two to three full-time managers. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. And today on the show, we have Rich Moyer of Hoppin Taproom, a self-serve taproom franchise. Rich is an accomplished entrepreneur who has already exited one company after building it to over $6 million in annual revenue. Hoppin is now his new venture, and he tells us about the innovative technology his franchise uses, how it cuts down on waste issues that most restaurants face, and why he chose to create a concept that only sells alcoholic beverages and not food. Enjoy the show. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I'm most interested in starting just, I know it's like Hoppin is obviously a bar and a tap room, but it's not just that simple. So like, can you kind of explain like the concept before we even get into the franchise stuff and your experience and all that? Like what is a Hoppin location? Hoppin was designed to eliminate, I always say 90, 95% of a bar owner's headaches. The typical bar has owner typically has to be involved 24 seven, seven days a week. It was a theft, stealing, stuff like that. So we had eliminated that with our technology. Uh, national average waste is 23%. We knocked our waste down to three to 4% of kegs, which is a big savings and it's big for the bottom line. But overall, happened as a self-serve tap room and what differentiates us is to the consumer, we're an experienced company. You can go get a drink at any bar down the street, what makes you want to go to our brand and go inside a hop? And that's our service and the experience we provide. On the flip side, as a franchisor, we're a marketing company. So what differentiates us from a typical bar or restaurant outside of not having food, the self-serve aspect, minimal staffing needs, is we focus on the marketing play. And that's what differentiates us from the, the other franchises in the restaurant world. That's super interesting. So I guess let's start, like, how'd you learn about that problem with the waste? Like, were you a bartender? Did you run a restaurant? What experience kind of opened your eyes to that issue? My background was actually in PGA professional. I was a golf professional right out of oh. high school. I got in the golf industry, became a PGA pro, ran golf courses for six and a half years. Well, towards the end of the six and a half years, I became a PGA pro and started running golf courses. Um, but it was in the industry for six and a half years. And I started to realize that everybody that was playing golf was members of mine that were working for themselves or they were in sales. So I got in the game of golf because I loved it, but I wasn't ever playing because I was working and started to just ask them questions. And that led me into getting into sales. One of my members gave me a, an opportunity to get into sales. 
sales led me into starting my first company, which was in a construction industry. I sold that company three, two months into my fourth year of business. Then in turn, started some other businesses and homemade ice cream shops that we have six locations. Hopping came around right around the same time. I saw the technology in the end of 2016 before I sold my company. And that technology was what really started to say, all right, this is not in our city. I've grown up in restaurants. My parents owned and managed and ran restaurants my entire life. That was the one thing I never wanted to do was food. And on the flip side, never really wanted to own a bar because I go out in Myrtle Beach when I live down there and watch my friends that bartended give drinks away for free just so they can get a tip and have the ability to never really charge people the amounts they wanted to because they were more focused on the tip. So why, when I saw the technology, I was like, all right, that eliminates those headaches. And it was something cool, something different. I was selling my company. I had a ton of cash to be able to invest in other things. And that's where Hopping was founded, was basically innovative, different, high tech. And I didn't have to be at the tap room for it to be successful. Super interesting. So am I hearing that right, that you discovered the concept and did you like approach the owners and strike a deal to franchise the concept or, or what was that process like? Yeah. So the first technology we use is different than what we use now, but self-serve technology has been around for a longer time than most people would think. The Hopping brand is all us. I mean, it's me and my team. We created the brand, created the franchise. I saw the technology in a different city. It was brought to oh. me from a, a friend at the time that saw the technology. And at that point, my first thought of a bar was like, heck no, because of the headaches and things that come with it and the overhead. Once I saw the technology, I was like, all right, you can run this with seven to 10 people, full staff, and then two to three full-time managers. And it's it's just a very simple concept, easy to run, very franchisable. Franchising happened uh, several years after we opened our first location. Super interesting. So can you kind of walk, obviously it would be easier if this was in person, but like, can you kind of walk me through you know, if I walk into a hop and I'm assuming it's just beers, right? No cocktails or anything. Um, yeah. So like, am I just grabbing a pint glass and taking my pick of the litter as if it's like one of those self-serve Froyo places, except obviously it's beer coming out, not frozen yogurt, yeah. or is that kind of the, yeah. how it goes? So it is very similar to, I mean, it's a frozen yogurt joint for adults, basically. But <laughs> we do have full cocktails. We do have wine on tap. We have ciders. We have seltzers. All Everything that you can drink is on tap. Some states, it's not legal to have self-serve cocktails. Wow. But the states that it is legal, self-serve cocktails. So process is when you walk into our front door, you'll walk into a check-in counter. That check-in counter is staff that's going to greet you, provide great service, explain the system, make sure you're legal age, and then give you an RFID wristband. The wristband is attached to your credit card. That credit card is basically an open tab. We give you your credit card back, but your wristband, everything you scan is charged back to your credit card. So once we give you a wristband, you'll go, if you've never been to any of our locations, you'll find somebody at our tap wall, one of our team. They'll say, hey, grab a glass. They'll explain the wall, find out what you like to drink, whether if it's a lager, an IPA, explain where those are, give some suggestions. You'll take your wristband, scan it onto our technology. That'll open up the tap. You can pour a tenth of an ounce all the way to a full glass. So you can try as minimal as the tenth of an ounce all the way to 16 ounces. And then that's no different than, you know, wine. It's obviously wine glasses are five or six ounces, pours, and then cocktails are a little less. But if you're doing a cocktail, same process. You just grab a glass, get ice, and then any garnishment if you want a fruit with it. Wow. So that's super fascinating. So, I mean, I guess you're 
or, or am I getting billed as a customer by per tenth of an ounce if I'm sticking with beer? Yeah, for everything that you're pouring, you'll get poured or you'll get charged for every tenth of an ounce and it's like a gas pump. So once you scan, it opens up your tab right there on the screen. It'll tell you how much you've already uh, poured. And then as you're pouring, it'll start to calculate. If it's say 50 uh, cents wow. an ounce, every ounce would be like $51, $152, but it does it at a tenth of an ounce. And then we also have full cocktail bars. So like you just wanted a regular cocktail that we don't have on tap. I feel like I might end up drinking more than I normally do. Cause like you kind of have to go through that mental conundrum. Like it's like, all right, do I go up and get another drink? Or yeah. it's like, ah, I got to pull on my credit card. And like, ah, I've already paid for X. Yeah. Now it's just like, let me just scan my wrist and I'm just going to have a little bit more and I'll just ignore that little gas bump screen in front of yeah. me. That's, huh. You'd be surprised. Cool. People think that they are drinking more because they're only pouring eight or 12 ounces of a beer instead of 16. Or if you go to a typical True. bar, you're getting 14 ounces, but they're charging you for a pint of 16 ounces. Whereas we're charging you for the true liquid ounce, but we're not wasting any. Our bartenders aren't over pouring the foam and getting rid of it. So it seems like you're drinking more. You might go up to the wall six, seven times, but only have three drinks. That's actually cool. Cause yeah, I didn't even think about that. You can really mix up the variety. Whereas, you know, you're not pouring like, like no bartender's going to accept like, oh yeah, here's three tenths of an ounce of this beer and three tenths of that one. Yep. So that's pretty cool just to kind of how customizable someone can make it if they really wanted to. Well, I'm curious. You said also after, I think you said after you sold your construction company, you started like an ice cream chain. No plans to franchise that? Is that just like more of a side project at this point that, you know, for cash flow or what's the thought there? When I was in the construction industry, it was just very time consuming. I was the guy, everybody called me. It was very stressful. That was one of the reasons I sold it. So I when a buddy of mine came to me, he was like, hey, my uncle's owned ice cream shops. He's got a homemade recipe. I want to open one in Charlotte. Would you invest? And talked to another friend that knew has known him longer than I have. And it's like, yo, is the ice cream good? And he's like, it's phenomenal. So I was like, it's something fun for me. The capital out front was very minimal to open up the ice cream shop. Yeah. And it was something different than what I was in. So the idea wasn't mine. The systems and processes and everything that we've created internally, operationally is all coming from my business partner. Both of them run the day-to-day and handle, you know, all that. I mean, I'm just bigger picture now and growth, but franchising wise, we have one license or two licensed locations. And oh. it was just more of friends that were like, Hey, we want to open up an ice cream shop because we love your brand and we can use it in the neighboring city of Charlotte. But the biggest difference is the cost to open is so minimal. And the profit margins are there that it's just, it's worth keeping that as a corporately run and corporately owned system. Yeah. Whereas hopping the out front capital is a lot more. So when you did originally like start the first hopping location and, you know, you clearly had the technology in mind as a big differentiator, was the thought to franchise it from day one or did it, was it along the way that? you know, maybe you or one of your partners were like, eh, maybe this could be a good franchise. When we first opened up, it was never a thought to franchise, right? It was just open up. If it was successful, maybe open up a second location, which we ended up doing about a year and a half later, a different concept, but still self-serve. And not until I'd say our full first year when people were coming in and like, how can we open this? Like this looked like a bigger company, just the way that we set it up from day one. How can we open one of these in Tampa, or how can we do one in Nashville or 
wherever the the cities were where people were coming in town and asking how they can open one. So that really got the mindset rolling of like, how can we expand that quickly? And franchising made the most sense because this the business after construction, once it's open, is very, very easy to manage and run. Whether if you want it to be an owner operator, an investor manager setup, which is like a semi-absentee operation, it's super easy to run and it's super easy to find good staff because they make great money. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like the tech aspects, what's really interesting to me, especially as it relates to the headcount, like you said, I think seven to 10 people per location. Uh, and do you say they're all full-time employees at that point? No. So typically two to three full-time, you have a manager, a oh, system right. manager, and an events person. The other people are $3 an hour and they're, they're usually in school or have a corporate job and they're just trying to pick up some extra cash. Gotcha. I mean, not, you know, I know some restaurant owners, it's like 18 to 25 employees per location and half of them are part-time high schoolers who, you know, it's like, but the, yeah. I mean, that's like more fast food setup, but still it can be a lot cool. administratively for a restaurant. So yeah, I'm curious to learn how much thought was put into the franchising side, meaning like when did you, when your team kind of just first started thinking about it? And then when, you know, like, when did you actually, like, when was day one of like, all right, FDD is yeah. ready. We can, you know, hit the toggle on our website, you know, franchise is available. Like, what was that process like from conversation to go live? Yeah. So we opened our first location end of 2017, which the whole year of 2018 was just, you know, figuring out the business. We poured over 3 million ounces of beer wine that year. So it was busy year, which makes it fun. But 2019 is when we were like, hey, let's franchise this. And we got all types of questions of how this can be in other cities. And then 2020 came, like we started the conversations in mid 2019, 2020 came the pandemic. At that point, it's just keep head above water, make sure my staff has food on their table for their families. And then once that calmed down, I was like, all right, it's time to get back onto the franchising idea and thought. And that started in 2022. And we had the FDD finished mid-2022, but our website wasn't finished until September of 2022. So realistically, we started advertising franchises September 2022. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously uh, COVID was, of course, hard for a lot of people. But yeah, I've spoken to people on this podcast who'd like, they're like, yeah, we started franchising February 2020. And it's just like, oh, that's brutal timing. No. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's interesting. I mean, we're kind of like around the one year mark then for your franchising efforts. What's it been like? You know, did you know anyone in the franchise world before this or did you just kind of have to figure it out from scratch? There's a lot I can look back on now. I wish that I learned or knew prior to it. After getting into franchising, I started to find out there's a lot of franchisors here in Charlotte, North Carolina, Clean Juice, Laundry Lab, and guys that have just opened their doors up and said, hey, if you ever need anything, let us know. And I've been fortunate enough to sit down with them and really learn and help us fast track on a lot of things that other franchisors might not have had the ability to. So that's been super beneficial. But from day one and like early on stages of getting things set up and FDD and all that, I just leaned on my franchise lawyer and legal team outside of that. It was just, you know, doing it ourselves and trying to figure it out as we went. But now, you know, having the support of some other franchisors in the community has been super beneficial. Absolutely. And yeah, actually, that reminded me that Dan Descito from Laundry Lab was the one who introduced us originally. So yeah, he's uh, him and his team, super good guys. You know, have you thought about exploring some of like the growth avenues within franchising? And I guess what I mean by that is for the maybe the franchise industry folks who listen to this podcast, you know, there's 
FSO professionals and there's obviously broker networks, but yeah, I mean, you guys have sold a good number of units in year one and a lot of it sounds to be organic. So yeah, I'm curious, you know, are you considering, you know, a franchise sales org route or are you guys thinking, you know, we can kind of figure out this growth plan and keep it internal? Yeah, right now it's keeping it internal. I think early on, it's very, very important for us to be able to vet and understand who our franchisees are early on because they'll sell the next 100 for us. So it's super important for me to be involved on that sales process. And then Zach, my director of franchise development, is the lead for all of our candidates. But we work with two broker networks right now, FranChoice and IFPG. And then we have a few relationships with independent brokers. FSO right now is not something of interest down the road. If we get to a point where, you know, it just doesn't make sense for us to focus on this, that entire sales process, we will. But right now it's, we're, we're taking it at a pace. As I always say, we're going to crawl, skip walking, and then run. Um, once we have <laughs> everything fully set up to where our initial franchisees are a great fit, great culture fit, they're super successful and they can help us validate and, and sell the next 100. Have you kind of implemented that crawl, skip the walking part and just go right to running before? Or is that just kind of how you think you can pull it off for the franchise growth? In my construction business, it was definitely crawl for about four months and then straight into running. I mean, we grew that from zero dollars out of pocket to 1.8 million the first year, 3.6 million the second year and 6.8 million the third year. So I guess that was kind of just my mindset and the growth that I've had in the past. So I think it's just very important as an entrepreneur to have your foundation as strong as you can early on, because then you can run. But if your foundation has cracks in it and you're trying to move really quickly, things will just continue to fall. But if you can just crawl in the beginning and learn as much as you can, then it's easy just to continue to move quickly. Regarding the construction business, I mean, was it like new housing units or just out of curiosity, uh, what kind of business was that? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough when I was in my sales role, outside sales role, I met a gentleman that became my first mentor and he mentored me on this business, just basically being, he's like, if you can sell, you can do anything. So I was a sales team for smaller contractors that couldn't sell themselves. So they were great contractors. Typically the owner was the owner and operator of running the business. And it was anything you can think of. I mean, anything from pressure washing, post-construction cleaning, drywall framing, concrete work, but it was all big jobs, hospitals, hotels, high rises, multifamily jobs. So I was just kind of fitting in where nobody else was or other contractors were leaving the job because they didn't want to finish it. And I'd go in and finish the work with my guys, but basically just trading paper. I created the sales, found great contractors that couldn't sell themselves, had the relationships with the big general contractors, basically gave them a price, gave my contractors a price and traded paper. (laughs) That's incredible revenue growth too. It's definitely not easy to pull off. So does any of that experience lend itself to what you're doing now? You know, like I see on your franchise website from like the training and support kind of section of the site, you reference architecture and construction. Like, is, is that kind of, do you guys have in-house staff or maybe it's you who are able to assist? Let's say at a more deeper level, you know, a lot of franchisors will advertise that they, you know, they help with the opening, but it's really like, oh, hey, you got to find an architect in your town. Like, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I have a little bit more experience than probably most franchisors in the construction, and we built 
myself built the first two locations that we had here in Charlotte. So nice. kind of know the ins and outs and learned a ton with those two of what we want to do on the future locations. But we have an architect design team that handles everything for every franchisor. It's a mandated that they, every franchisee has to utilize our, our design team. And yeah, that's beneficial because every project we can learn something new. Whereas if they bring in a different architect design team, they're not going to understand the true process. And our team would have to give them all the details anyway, just save time and energy for everybody. Uh, that's a huge benefit. And I think uh, you know, it's tough for candidates to actually vet that out beforehand because you know there's just there's so many franchises. The whole process can be overwhelming. So to truly understand the support is like, a, it's a big aspect. And I think that'll also just be really beneficial for you guys in the long run because you know, there's something I'm starting to key on in on a lot more granularly is like a lot of the headlines, at least within like the franchise industry, not obviously mainstream media, but within the industry, it's all about, you know, like what brand is selling a bunch of units. And, you know, there's always a new brand, a couple of new brands usually every year where it's like, okay, you know, this is the hot one of the year and they've sold like a 300 locations, but tracking the actual number of units that get open each year is like a totally different metric. It's a fraction yeah. of the percentage. And it's because I yeah. just think there's a huge difference between that development department that sells the units and then the support and, you know, the franchise opening team, basically, uh, that helps them find the real estate, build the location and get them open. It's like there's brands that have a 10% open rate relative to the units or less than 10%, you know, over the years yeah. following. So have you thought about like that process specifically of like, time that we sign that franchise agreement to like getting them open and cash flowing. Yeah. Typical time frame. Once the FTD is signed, we try and move as quickly as possible to find real estate. I guess there's a few things now that are a little bit different than say pre 2020, because everybody's building like crazy and everybody's busy cities for permitting are busy, but we're typically, I mean, the best end, like the best case scenario is 12 months, but it's typically we're seeing 16 to 18 months after you sign the FTD. I'm curious, like so far, who do you have like an ideal franchisee profile that you've been seeing or like who are these kind of, you know, to me, I always think like for the emerging franchises, you always kind of need like someone who is going to take that little bit of a leap of faith, right? Because it's not, yeah. yeah, every franchise has to start at one location. McDonald's started at one location. And, you know, when I used to work at a deeper level with emerging brands, I could kind of tell early on in like a conversation if someone's too analytical. I'm just like, ah, this isn't going to work long term. Like at some point in this process, they're going to, they're never going to get comfortable enough with the fact that we don't have a hundred locations open to give them the data that like this concept yeah. absolutely works in all these different yeah. markets. But so, yeah, I'm curious, how have you found these first franchisees? Like, you know, what's their background and, and all that? I mean, the ideal candidate for me doesn't need any experience in the restaurant or bar industry. It's, it's truly a good leader somebody that's a good mentor, a good leader. I mean, that's all, I mean, I've always flipped the triangle upside down. I'm the CEO founder. I'm at the bottom. My team, I work for them. They don't work for me. So having that mindset and the culture of, of being a good leader as is, is a good mindset is the most important. It's what we do is so easy. I can train a monkey to do it. That's not the hard part. The hard part is finding good people. So leadership is backgrounds. I mean, there's really no true background. We do have five different ideal candidates that we have built out and actually put together, but they're all different, right? I mean, you have that investor group that wants multiple locations. You have the husband, wife that maybe has their first child. You have the young entrepreneur that wants to get into his own thing, has been successful in sales. So, but ideally it's just 
good leadership skills, somebody that comes from a background that understands the importance of people and having a good perspective as a leader. It's always good to hear that anyone, right, of, of certain backgrounds and lack of experience in the industry, right, shouldn't, you know, that shouldn't be a deal breaker, which surprisingly I've seen that, I've been seeing that more where, you know, in my head, I'm like, that's the kind of the point of a franchise, right, is that they can train you and you don't need the prior experience. But anyways, does the concept, this is what I meant to follow up on earlier. Can you purchase food there or is it just drinks? Yeah, so we are drinks only. But what we do, and this is, again, I grew up in the restaurant world, not personally, but my parents have been in it since they were 13 years old and own yep. and manage restaurants. So realizing how much time and energy and the turnover in restaurants and food and waste and all that, I set this up from day one to work with food partners, local food operators that people know people want to go to anyway. And that's food trucks, neighboring restaurants, or in the future, we have some of our locations will have a food stall inside and they'll work with like a local taco joint or a local chicken or burger or whatever the case may be. But that also kind of drives our core values of working within a community. So yeah, we don't actually do any of the food ourselves and it, that eliminates a lot of time and energy for our franchisees. And the focus is to work with local partners. That would be music to my ears, honestly, because that I could imagine the operational efficiencies that creates by not dealing with the food. I mean, that's just a whole nother part of the equation. And it's funny. I mean, I just finished a stint recently in Austin, Texas for about a year back in the Northeast now. But something that was interesting about Austin that I didn't see in New York City and other places I had lived, you know, there's a lot of like bar slash restaurants there, but it's really like a restaurant or a bar. And then they bring yeah. in like there's a food truck like inside, like in the backyard or right on the side on the sidewalk. And it's a different company. But like they just kind of have like these partnerships and like a lot of, you know, bars are, are like that in Austin. So it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah, super beneficial. You know, we're really good at what we do. Usually food operators that only focus on food and they're not like a full built out restaurant or bar and restaurant. They're very, very good at what they do. Yeah, exactly. It's the specialization and, you know. I'm curious too, I mean, if you've been in and around this industry for a while, is there like a general, you know, margin on the alcohol? Like I've always heard of alcohol is higher margin than the food, but like, you know, just a, a typical bar, if I'm buying, which let's exclude New York City, where they charge like $15 for a Bud Light, but in most markets, right? Like, is there a typical margin that restaurants or and bars are trying to make for their average drink that they're selling? Yeah. I mean, on the, like the baseline, if you're not getting into like a downtown Nashville or New York City, yeah. you're looking at 80% gross profit. We float anywhere from 78 to 82% gross margins. So your typical cost of goods is 18 to 22%. Damn. Yeah. That's unless uh, you're a brewery. If you're a brewery serving your own beer, it's a lot more. It's like yeah, 90, 90. For sure. For sure. You just got this big fixed cost to get over with all the equipment. Exactly. But uh, yeah, it's fascinating, man. So between that and folks, if you're listening, you know, typical restaurant franchise, right? That's selling food. You know, the rule is prime cost. So labor and cost of goods, ideally below 60%, you know, 30% between each. So it's usually higher cost, right? For, for selling food. So this is a bit of a different concept compared to your typical fast casual or QSR or even casual dining concept, just given the fact that it's only alcohol. Uh, Rich, it's been fun, man. Is there a good spot online where people could find your brand, look at the franchise, and maybe even follow you if you have any social media profiles that you're publishing content from? 
Yeah, me personally on LinkedIn and then also on Instagram, Rich underscore Moyer on Instagram. But our YouTube channel is just search Hoppin Franchise on YouTube. We'll pop up or Hoppin Brands on YouTube. Instagram, one of our main Instagram handles is Hoppin CLT or then Hoppin Franchise. Go directly to our website, ownahoppin.com. Or if you're interested, feel free to email me at rich at hoppinbrands.com or my director of franchise development, Zach, at hoppinbrands.com. Awesome. Well, uh, folks, we'll plug those in the show notes so you can follow along the brand's journey or get in touch. And yeah, Rich, thanks again, man. This was fun and uh, hopefully we talk soon. Awesome, man. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.